0: questions you always had, the answers you were never given, the place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas.
1: What do people see as death approaches? What will heaven be like? What will hell be like? Tonight we discuss the deathbed visions of hospice patients as well as those in a critical care setting who have died and then returned to describe their experience on the other side. The book is titled An Army in Heaven, and it will change how you view life, and most importantly, how you view death. Greetings, I'm your host, Mel Fabregas. To listen to this entire interview and all of our material, subscribe at VeritasRadio.com. Tonight's special guest is Kelly Jankowski. Kelly was in... was born in Omaha and raised in a small town in eastern Iowa. She is one of seven children. Her father was an ER physician and her mother a homemaker. She worked in cardiac critical care from 1984 through 2010. She began hospice nursing in 2009 and currently works in an inpatient hospice. Kelly is the mother of six children and she joins us directly from Maryland. Hello, Kelly, and welcome to Veritas. How are you?
0: I'm good. I'm good. Thank you for having me.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure. And Kelly, I have to tell you, after reading your book, Uh, An Army in Heaven, I was overwhelmed, overwhelmed with with multiple emotions. It made me realize that we are here just for a short amount of time, and, and we must not only enjoy it as much as we can, but we shouldn't worry so much, but most importantly, that we should spend time with the people that we love, or if we can't spend time because circumstances have placed us far away. We should at least communicate how we feel because we never know when our time is up.
0: Yeah, exactly right. We all have our hour, our day, and our minute, and only God knows it. So people take time, take advantage of time um, when they don't realize how precious it is. is Because most of the patients that I talk to when they're near the end of their lives, they have a... I hear over and over and over again, I, I didn't need to work every day. I didn't need to pull doubles and I, I should have spent more time with my family. I should have. I wished I could have. And, you know, all those regrets and I wish I had done things differently um, surface over and over and over again. Uh, so it really makes you want to treasure the time that you have here and make good use of it.
1: You know, this might not be part of the book, but this will be an interesting discussion. After so many years working with patients in ICU, in hospice, you must know some common denominators, some things that you keep hearing again and again and again that you should impart upon other people so that they don't repeat the same mistakes if they still have some life ahead of them.
0: Um, the things that we hear over and over and over again are what I just relayed and i You'll hear different things that I I should have been closer to God. You hear that a lot too. And is He going to accept me because I've basically ignored Him my whole life? <laughs> um, and you have to you kind of have to help people through this because you know towards the end of life we all, we all have to reconcile our our life at the end. Every every single one of us, whether we want to or not. Um, and the repeating thing that people that people say over and over and over again was, am I good enough? Did I do a good enough job? And I wish I'd have done better. We we hear that all the time.
1: And you were an ICU nurse for a long time. Now mm-hmm. you're a hospice nurse, but first what made you want to be a nurse and how and why did you transition from ICU to hospice?
0: Well, having a, a, a physician for a father, had a huge impact on me because um he would come home after work and we'd be sitting around the, the dinner table and, and we'd, he'd tell us about different things that happened and different interesting things that happened. And I really in my book, the, the I think the pivotal moment for me was when he took care of a, a young boy who was bitten by a rattlesnake. And we're talking small town, Iowa. And, and my dad started off in um, he started off in family practice and then went into emergency room. So back in the day when you didn't have insurance, you know, the insurance issues that we have now. Um, anyway, he ended up ambulancing the man or the little boy to um, the University of Iowa hospitals because they didn't have the antivenom in this little place my dad was working. But the the people that um, brought the boy in also, they had killed the snake. So they brought the snake in with them. And so my dad and, and the other doctors said, let's just take it after the boy was sent off. Let's just take a picture of the snake. So they took an <laughs> x-ray of the snake. And my dad brought it home and he was holding it up in front of the dining room light. And you could see the, you could see the rib cage and he showed us what was what and the the spine and all of a sudden and inside of, inside of the snake was, was the, uh, the skeleton of a rat. And I found it fascinating. I thought, wow, how, how neat is that? I was only like in first grade, first, second grade, but hearing his stories and the different things that he would do and, and, Somebody would come in and they'd be in a motor vehicle accident, and they'd be massively bleeding, and all the steps he would go through to to save them and I was hooked <laughs> and I thought, well, that's what I want to do when I grow up. I want to be in a position where I can help people and um coming from a medical family um it kind of he kind of just spurred me on I don't think I was smart enough to be a doctor I didn't have the uh i didn't want to put another twelve years into school, <laughs> so I decided, well, nursing is good so that's what I got started in that. And I fell in love with the heart during nursing school because I found it fascinating. And um, when my first job they did, I was initially going to be an L&D nurse, believe it or not, but they didn't have any openings. So that my next choice then was cardiology. So I did a year on the floor, just trying to get my feet wet and figured out what I was doing as a brand new nurse. And then I went right into um, cardiothoracic ICU down at Methodist Hospital in Houston, Texas. And I worked there for a while and then I stayed in critical care up in through 2010, and it just got to the point that I just couldn't do it anymore. Um, people would come in with just extensive, irreparable, uh, incurable disease processes, and the family would be screaming at us, You have to do everything. Well, I'm sorry, Grandma's in her 90s. <laughs> and it's, it's, God is calling. It's written all over her body that God is trying to call her home. Um, and I just felt there was, No comfort in it. There was very little dignity in somebody being tied down in the bed, shoved full of tubes. And I realized that my favorite patients to care for were the ones that were DNRs, that we weren't going to do all the heroics to. But then I could facilitate their comfort. I could help their families through the grieving process. Um, And I fell in love with that because I felt like I was making more of an impact in their lives, not only by caring for them, but helping them through the process on a spiritual level, too. And I fell in love with that. And then one of my girlfriends says, have you ever thought about going into hospice? And I really hadn't. And then, um, so I started looking around. And then I I continued critical care while I started hospice. Um, And then I realized very shortly after that that I needed to get out of critical care and do hospice full time. So that's what I did.
1: So you went to... I guess, well, L&D, and for those who are wondering, all these acronyms, L&D and DNR, labor and delivery and DNR do not resuscitate. But you went from once... No, that's okay. That's okay. (laughs) Just for the layman out there who may not know. But um, in your case, you went from, or we're going to go from one side of the spectrum, labor and delivery, which is the beginning of life. Mm -hmm. You went all the way to the other side, to the end of life.
0: Yeah. It is the most... I mean, I've been a nurse for a really long time, and it is the most fulfilling job I've ever had as a nurse. And a lot of people will find out I'm a hospice nurse, and they're like, oh, God, that's morbid. How can you do that every day? But they don't see the beautiful side of it. Um, not every death is, is horrible. Um, I've seen absolutely incredibly beautiful deaths. And um, to, to be able to take a family who comes in in crisis, Sometimes we get patients into our unit who have only been diagnosed in the ER. They, they ended up with abdominal pain and they end up going to the emergency room and they, they end up getting scanned and they, they find out that they're full of, full of cancer. And then they, when they're told the only option is hospice, they go from the emergency room then into our inpatient hospice. So you're bringing a patient in whose head is still reeling from the diagnosis and here they are in hospice. It's only been a few hours. So you have to help not only the patient through that, but you got to help the family. And it's we get patients in crisis mode all the time, and to be able to work through it just by talking and and um, telling them about what to expect and why this is happening or why he's doing this or what symptom you know presents itself and why and the medications that we can give to calm that down and just helping them through it and then hugging them when the when the end comes and crying with them and it to me it just it was, It's my niche, and I found it to be my calling, and I, I enjoy going to work every day.
1: I have to say this, Kelly, based on my own experience and that of countless others, if there are angels on this earth, I would say nurses must be in that category. And not to take credit away from doctors, but nurses truly connect with patients. In your case, even to the person's last breath, mm-hmm. how do you cope with this? on a daily basis
0: um, you pray an awful lot <laughs> you really do I mean I, I, ha- I go into work all the time and when I see a patient changing and n- there's no family there or if the patient doesn't have family or waiting for the family to arrive I I pray an awful lot because I'm not I, I don't judge people I'm not here to judge anybody it's not my job but um, you never know what goes on in people's lives um, you never know what suffering they've had, what what issues they've had, um, their relationship with God. Um, so I pray an awful lot for them. I don't. I I pray under my breath. I'll pray inside my heart. Sometimes I'll pray with them if they ask me to. I don't force it on them. Um, you have to meet people, and especially in a hospice situation, you have to meet people where they are. Um, you can't force your beliefs on them. You can't, you know, judge them for the beliefs they have or don't have. Do you know what I mean? Um, so. Um, I pray an awful lot. I pray for them. I pray for the strength to keep going on because there's a lot of times where you get attached to to patients and some, some of them they roll through the door and they immediately have your heart. You know, they can look up at you and smile and immediately you're just like, Oh, I love you. (laughs) Um, So when they're passing, it's very difficult, but you have to keep your head together because you've got a job to do. Um, So, I used to think that it was um, a sign of weakness to cry when a patient died or, you know, and I've realized that, oh, good heavens, that's a ridiculous point of view. But I was a young nurse at the time. Um, but I sit down a lot of times and I'll hug my pa- my patient's family members and I'll cry right with them. Um, and it's a very cathartic kind of thing to do. It's, it's a release to it Gets all those emotions out so you don't tend them up inside.
1: You must... I guess it must be reemphasized to you, on a daily basis, all the emotions, you know, all the that do not judge, all the principles that we think all the time that we may not apply on our daily life, but when, after reading your book, you know, we're going to be discussing a lot of these stories, but sometimes you hear of the a patient situation uh, that they're alone and that the. The family might not want to go see for, for many reasons. And you think, oh, how, how bad can they be? Why are they so mean to this person? But then you realize what life they went through and you feel compassion for the family too. Yeah. Yeah. Now, there are plenty of nurses that, that witness what you have experienced for, for years, but it doesn't occur to them to, to write down the experiences. When and why did you decide to document these events?
0: Um, I started really, well, I kind of always, well, I did kind of always keep a journal. Um, I'd write down specific patients and their stories that I found fascinating or ones that touched my heart. And I just kind of, you know, I'd come home from work and while you're winding down after the adrenaline, I would write their stories down. Um, I didn't really, um, really, really start in in depth until I met Simon, um, my little patient who had resuscitated in the field and came into our unit um, on a ventilator, and he had had a massive heart attack. Um, He had an experience um, where he went to heaven, and he met his deceased parents, and he met Jesus, and he saw the beautiful vistas of heaven, um, and they were so detailed um, that I, I asked him... Halfway through it, I I need to write this down. Would you mind if I wrote this down? He said, "Absolutely, go ahead." So I went and grabbed a a notebook from the nurses' station, and I mean, it was it was a couple hours. And then after he got discharged from the hospital, we kept in touch, and I'd go over to his house. And he didn't—I don't think he really realized that every time I was over there, "quote unquote" visiting, I was really interviewing him. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> because I wanted to know, I wanted to know more, and I wanted to know everything. And I knew him for for several years um, before he finally passed. But um, his his story uh, had the biggest impact on me. And then when I met Alan, in uh, when I got into hospice, he had died on the operating table during open heart surgery, and he he point blank said, "I left it. I I led a hedonistic lifestyle. It was all about me. I didn't give a crap about anybody else." Um, it was me, me, me. I was selfish to the core uh, and handed up his judgment was hell. Um, but thankfully it wasn't permanent and he ended up coming. He came back and he told me his story. And he, when I sat down, I crossed my legs and I'm leaning forward and I'm listening to him. He said, you want to write this down? I said, absolutely. So I went and did the same thing with Alan. And Alan was, he was one of our respite patients, um, respite patients in a hospice situation. They get five days a month. Um, to come into our unit and we take care of them. It gives the family a break, especially if they're full-time caregivers. So he was our respite patient and he would come in very frequently. So he and I developed quite a relationship and quite a rapport with each other. I loved him to death. Um, But in talking to his wife, she said 20 years ago when this happened, this is not the same man. This is not the same man that went into surgery. It's a completely different man who woke up and he completely changed his life and he was he was a deer but they, now, they, they had the biggest impact
1: you when you work in ICU correct me if I'm wrong but or even in in hospice sometimes you have to resuscitate if there's not a DNR I do not resuscitate or the family hasn't communicated this or if the patient hasn't agreed but sometimes you have people who are very very elderly and they, you know, you have a, you have a story that I don't think is in the book of the no, the <laughs> oldest person in Maryland. Tell us about that.
0: Yeah, well, we we ended up resuscitating a woman who was the oldest living Marylander at the time. She's 105 years old, and you cannot do chest compressions on someone that old without doing damage. Um, I but I was I was cracking ribs. I could hear it, and I looked over at the cardiologist, and I'm like, "What? What are we doing? This is insane! This is insane!" <laughs> This is this is not what we should be doing. And he pointed like he said, the family wants everything done. I said, she's 105. The resuscitation efforts didn't go on very long, um, and before he called it because she was beyond she was beyond repair. She was she was so old. God love her. It was it was heartbreaking. And I I thought long and hard after that. I is this really what I want to do? Do do I want to inflict this kind of pain on somebody on their last moments who are like I described before? They're they're on a ventilator, their hands are tied down because you don't want them pulling out the, all the tubes, and they've got tubes everywhere, and they end up dying on a ventilator in a unit. It's I just couldn't do it anymore. <laughs> I just so I, I actively started looking after uh, that instance with her.
1: That is incredible. That sometimes you know people want. I remember, and I don't mean to talk about myself, but with my when I lost my first next of kin, my father in 1994, I remember how. He was in a coma, brain dead. He had a massive heart attack, but they kept resuscitating and again and again and again. And I just, I was a representative and I had to tell them that the, 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 the doctor do not resuscitate. And that was very hard for me. But, yeah. you know, after doing all the testing and the you know, water in the ears and the, you know what I mean, uh, the needles on the, on the, on the uh, fingers, you have to let go sometimes, don't you? Yeah,
0: yeah. You do. And, and, and people don't, they don't tell you the automatic guilt that comes with making a decision like that um, to make somebody a do not resuscitate because mm-hmm. always in the back of your mind, it's like, did I do enough? Should I've tried that? What I if, have, right. You know? Right. And um, I don't think you can get away with that. I, I think because everybody I've encountered that have had them make that, make that decision, they all have that, that feeling. So I warn them about it ahead of time. I said, they're not going to, you know, it's automatically, it happens automatically. I went through it with my father when my father passed and I was his um, medical POA. And um, when we brought him from Iowa to here to Maryland, cause he had um, prostate cancer that had gone into the bone. Um, and I got him enrolled in the, in the hospice that I worked at. Um, and we talked about the DNR and my father was adamant. He says, yeah, I don't want all that. I mean, he was a physician, so he knew what was involved, but I, I got, I had to sign the papers and it was difficult. Even after even after he passed, um, different things would enter my mind, and, and I ended up taking it to my um, my parish priest to talk to him about it because all of those doubts came through. And he said, No, you don't worry about it. This is this is normal. You're you're doing a normal thing. But what you did was right in the in the whole scheme of things. What you did was right. So. That, that helped. But even, and I was a hospice nurse at the time and I had those feelings. So you, I can imagine somebody that doesn't have any sort of medical background what goes through their head when they're forced with a decision like that. It's difficult. It's very difficult.
1: No, there's guilt. And not only is there guilt, but then you're going to have a relative or two who's questioning you after the oh, fact.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Now let's dive into the book. And I have to say, I feel strange by saying this, but I had a a box of Kleenex right in front of me while I was reading the book. It, <laughs> <laughs> but you cannot uh, you cannot avoid that. And what I'm saying is true. A lot of emotions took over, and a lot of perspective. You know, if I was uh, I had a real estate deal that I'm dealing with right now, I put it on the side because it was stressing me out this week. And I thought, you know, we are so mortal. We live here on a short amount of time. That can wait. Why right. chase something physical if we're never going li- to li- you know, leave this plane with it? Enjoy the people around you. Mm-hmm. But anyway, the first case, and a lot of these cases don't have anything to do with the afterlife. Some do, right. some do not, correct? Right. But it's that end when you can summarize the entire life of what people feel about that person, whether good or bad. Let's begin with Frank. Together, uh, yeah. since age six.
0: Yeah, Frank was um, Frank was a patient that I had when I worked down in Houston who um, had, he had a bad heart disease. And um, his little wife, they'd met when they were in first grade. Um, and he, he had, it's hard to explain, but uh, he had been through a lot. He'd been back and forth from his home state down to Texas because the doctors there were experts in his condition. And uh, he had suffered a lot. And it got to the point towards the end that he, I mean, he point blank told us, he said, I'm tired. I can't do this anymore. Um, And then he opted for comfort care. Um, And that was back in the early 80s. So um, where your length of stay in a hospital was a lot longer than it is today. So we we basically then took care of him until he he died. Um, But one night, uh, his wife was she was struggling a little bit, and I'd go in and, and sit down and I'd hold her hand and talk to her and pray with her and uh, different things. And um, she reached over the his bedside stand and she pulled down this big basket full of letters from his home state, from people that knew him. He he owned a a, a line of um, small grocery stores and he was a farmer. And uh, when he found out if there was anybody in the area, because there was a rural community that was in need, he would he deliver them food. Never ask for anything in payment. And and if people were too proud to to say that they needed help, and he found about it, he'd make them, he'd make deliveries <laughs> anonymously, so to speak. But they all they all they all knew who it came from. <laughs> um, but these aspects of his life, she didn't know about until all these letters started pouring through. So she even in even towards the end of his life, when he was at this point unconscious, she learned things about her husband that she hadn't known. And she'd been married to him since out of high school. Uh, dear, dear people. And uh, his story, why he's first was he was basically the first death um, that I witnessed as a new nurse. And um, it was on the step-down unit. and uh, But his whole story around it, it was just such a touching moment in my life as a nurse and in her life finding out about her husband that she didn't know about. And it was just, it had a, such an impact on me. And I carried that around for, for years and years and years. And uh, that's why I dedicated him as the first chapter.
1: And talk about somebody without an ego, that yeah, the wife received so many letters of things that she didn't even know he had done.
0: Yeah, and, very humble. So, yeah,
1: right, very humble. And all the flowers. And what happened to the flowers after he passed?
0: Oh, she, um, she, it, and his room was full. Um, she asked that we take the different flowers to um, patients' rooms who didn't have any. Uh, she said Frankie would have wanted it that way. So that's what we did. We And we ran out of, we, we had more flowers than rooms, so then we took them down to some of the other floors and asked the nurses at the station um, if anybody, you know, was alone or didn't have flowers, and so we distributed them down there too.
1: Yeah. So you hear stories like these, and, and you realize how there's plenty of good people out there that oh, you yeah. may not even know who they are sometimes. So, right. again, the, the whole judging part and the next story is is one is the one that sealed it for me regarding, not you know judging Mabel a cruel memory. Tell okay. us about that.
0: Uh, Mabel was a a woman that came into our unit had a massive heart attack. Um, she was non compliant. She was diabetic hypertensive. Um, she had um, she had come in on a ventilator, and I, I we had a heck of a time getting a hold of her daughter. Um, But we finally tracked her down and uh, told her what was going on and that her mom wasn't going to make it. And we wanted to know if she wanted further resuscitative measures uh, done. And she said, no, she says if she dies, just let her go. And and so I asked her, I said, do you want to come in and see her? She goes, no, just call me when she dies. And I thought that was kind of, it was kind of cold the way she said it. And I thought, well, you know, you never know. Because there's a lot of people that can't stand to see, they can't stomach seeing somebody full of tubes. I get that. I understand this. So I just kind of let it go. So she ended up passing. And, um, so I called her daughter and I said, you know, I'm sorry to tell you, but your mom has passed. Um, did you want, did you want to come in? And she said, yeah, I'll come up. So we were getting her Mabel's body ready. F- um, for the family to come in and we took the tube the um, the ventilator off and we took the tube out of her m- mouth and the strap that holds it in and her face was scrunched up and contorted like um, like a scowl um, and her her brow was all furrowed up and um, we tried everything to get it to get her to relax um, I washed her face I combed back her hair I readjust I adjusted the pillow and nothing would get away get this expression off of her face and the nurse that was helping me, it, it freaked her out. She said, I'm out of here. I <laughs> there's a, there's a creepy feeling in this room and there's something wrong with this lady and I, I'm out of here. And I'm like, well, we're not done yet. So she, I called in another nurse and she came and helped me. And it, it, she was absolutely right. There was a, there was a, um, there was a feeling in that room that was dark and not, something wasn't right. Uh, kind of creepy. Um So when the daughter came in, um, I you know, I took her into the room and we were talking, I was asking her different questions about her mom. Apparently her mom was quite nasty. She was unkind. She'd been married several times. Um, there was a a slew of children involved and the youngest one, um, had committed suicide. He had broken away from the, the family, gotten away from his mother. Basically is what, what we found out, got involved in gangs down in the inner city and, um, you know ended up i don't know if i told if 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 i said in the book that he committed suicide or if he no murder, you
1: did but, not you said he yeah. he was uh, he was killed and maybe perhaps you're protecting that but yeah. it, it was it because the child uh, the, the man she had that child with left her
0: right. with a right. for a
1: neighbor i believe and he resembled a lot to the father and she took it, right. to all the brunt
0: Right, she got the brunt of her um, anger, and she was um, ridiculously cruel to the child, not only um, emotionally and 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 physically, but um, like spiritually. You're never going to amount to anything, and you know you should never been born. And it was on and on and on and on and on. So I'm listening to this woman just spew all of the nasty things about her mother, and it broke my heart because I thought this the Looking at the woman's face and hearing the life story, you see you could kind of see a, a correlation almost. But in the end, and I said, I said, well, um, is any other family members going to come in? And uh, she turned around. And she said, no. Nope. And she grabbed up her purse and she says, nobody wants to come in. And she goes, you do whatever you want with your body. None of us want it. She walked out of the unit. And I thought, wow. But you're looking at, you're looking at a culmination of years and, years and years and years and years and years of abuse, um, at the hands of this woman laying in the bed. And, you know, like I said, you got to meet people where they are. You can't judge them. You, you just, you, I, I was thankful that she was able to vent and let go of that to a certain extent on me. Yeah. Um, but it, it was heartbreaking to hear of the situation that that whole family found themselves in. Um, because of of the patient. It was, it was heartbreaking. So you never know, you never know what, um, what cross, you never know what cross people have carried their whole life. Exactly. You never know, like, like there's, there's one quote that says, um, don't judge her because you don't know what storm I've asked her to walk through, you know, and coming from God, you know, God saying that to you. And it's very, very true because, and looks are deceiving, too. You'll you see people that you think, oh, you know, they're wealthy and they're this and they're that. Uh, hearts as cold as stone. And you get a little homeless man in there <laughs> who has nothing but is the most genuine, compassionate, gentle human being you ever meet. So, you know, you just you can't you can't judge on appearances either. So it's just best not to judge at all. <laughs>
1: You know, I sometimes wonder, and I know this conflicts. I know you're a devout Catholic. I grew up a Catholic, and some people just don't believe in reincarnation. And I sometimes wonder if we're here to learn a lesson, and then perhaps we come back, or maybe we go somewhere else. But these people, like Mabel, you know who had such a hard life. And again, I'm not even going to judge that lady because, do you know what she went through as no. a child?
0: Yeah, exactly. Right.
1: Yeah. And there are other stories that are similar to that. Uh, eventually, we'll 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 discuss some of them. But did you were you able to talk to Mabel at all to get any glimpse of her life and her no. side of the story? No,
0: no. And by, by the time she came to us, she was um, on a ventilator. Oh, people can't talk when they're on a ventilator because you know. And she was sedated because you can't. You have to let the heart rest, so you can't have people fighting and everything when they're when the heart is going through, you know, a, a heart attack. You have to rest the heart. So, and you got to keep them you got to keep the machines in to, to rest the heart, and oxygenator and different things like that. So, she was sedated um to a certain extent. Um but we we learned very quickly that this was more than the sedation. We ended up cutting off the the um IVs that would sedate her and she never did wake up. So, yeah.
1: This question just popped in my mind right now. Mm-hmm. Did you have any experiences with patients that came to hospice and miraculously they got better and they left hospice?
0: Oh yeah. We, 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 we have people who graduate. Yeah. They graduate hospice. (laughs) Yeah. It's not that we've, that the disease is cured, but it almost like um, sometimes it'll just slow down to the point that they, they start feeling better. They'll start eating again. They'll get their strength back. Um, It doesn't mean that the disease is gone. Um, it's just that sometimes I just think God gives them a little reprieve. Maybe he's got something more for them to do or.
1: So hospice is not the exit door. In other words, it's not a hundred percent.
0: No, a lot of people think that, that, that hospice, okay, that's the end. And you're just going to give me drugs and I'm going to die. That's not at all. That is not at all. There's a lot of misconceptions about hospice and what we actually do. Um, for my, like for my father, for instance, he came from Iowa He called me up. He said, I can't do it anymore. My mom has very bad dementia. Um, He said, I can barely take care of myself, much less myself and your mom. So we flew him from, he and mom from Maryland to, or from Iowa to Maryland. Um, When he got to my house, he was white as a sheet. He had lost probably 20, 30 pounds. He could barely, he couldn't walk up the stairs without help. He was vomiting. It was, he couldn't eat. It was terrible. He got there on a Sunday. We got hospice involved on Monday. Um, they switched his medicines around. they put him on a what they call a fentanyl patch to control his pain without having to go through the gut, because the medicines they were giving him were just making him sick. Within six weeks, my dad was driving again. I had put weight on him. He was up and walking around. He was going to mass every day. I, oh, unbelievable. And even he couldn't believe it. He said, I, I thought coming here that I was going to be dead within six weeks. And look, I'm driving. And I'm like, yeah, Dad, you know, we got your symptoms under control. We got your pain managed. And um, you're able to to continue, you know, until God calls you home. Um, hospice is really good about managing symptoms that, that, that come up with different disease processes. Um, I've met very few people that they couldn't get symptoms under control. So what hospice then does is it not, sometimes will prolong life. They've, they've actually done studies where, where getting hospice involved will prolong your life because your pain is better managed. So your quality of life then improves dramatically sometimes, like in the case of my father. Um, and he didn't die then until he died January 27th of the following year. So there's a lot of misconceptions a lot of people think that that even when they come into our inpatient unit they think oh i'm just this is the death house i'm just going to come in here to die and i'm like no we're just going to get your symptoms under control we're going to get you on the right recipe of medicines and then we're gonna get you home and it's unbelievable the amount of people that that they come in and they think this is it i'm, I'm right gone and we get their their pain and their nausea and different things under control and they, they they start eating again and they get a little bit of strength back and we get them back home so a lot of them come in and they're like, I don't want to die here. I want to die at home. Well, that's our goal then. You know, if if that's your goal to go back home, to die, to die at home, then that's our goal. Sometimes we can do it. Sometimes we can't. But the majority of the times we can get them back home.
1: Would it be safe to say that the majority of the people who go into hospice truly think, well, this is it. But then all of a sudden they get better? And they go back home, and maybe they last—I don't know—months, maybe even years. Yeah. Do their attitudes change once oh, they I- get out of there and think, "Whoa, I didn't die."
0: Yeah, 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 absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. And then they'll come back in for respite stays, you know, and and I will never forget one man who who came in, and that was his attitude: "I'm I'm here to die, and I'm never going to get better, and you know, I'm this is it." And we were like, well, we're just, you know, we'll give medicine and we'll control that vomiting. And we had to get his pain into control. And we—it took a few days. We got him on the right recipe. I um, mean, he ended up coming back several times for respite. And he—he he said, you know, I've told everybody in my church and I've told all my neighbors, you know, hospice isn't what you think it is. Look at me.
1: <laughs> so, all right
0: Yeah. He was our—he was our best advocate out there in the public. So.
1: And I'm so glad that people like you and and hospice exist for... And, you know, I have another radio show, and some people may think that I'm against allopathic medicine, and I'm not. You know, I have questions about chronic disease and the fact that they say that a lot of things are incurable. But when it comes to this, this is so necessary, and the compassion that you all show is just... I'm so glad to, to be speaking with somebody like you today. But on the first two stories, there were no mentioning of the afterlife, but on this third one about a man named... Robert. He actually saw the tunnel and the light. Please tell us more.
0: No. Yeah. Um, he came in, he was, um, a younger man. He was us let. he was a, um, actually he was a professor and he led a IT man and he led a very sedentary life because he's at the computer all day long. He came in with a massive heart attack. Um, and his heart rhythm was getting all screwed up and he would, his heart rate would go from the 80s and 90s down into the 20s. Um, as his heart rate would drop, um, he would get what they call vagal, and he'd get really sweaty, get very nauseated, and then he'd start to vomit. And then we'd be, be given him medicine to try and get the heart rate back up, and then he'd wake up. and He'd sit, he'd sit up in the bed once his heart rate picked back up. And he, he looked at me, and he's kind of frightened, and he goes, is it normal to hallucinate when you're having a heart attack? Yeah. <laughs> I said, I said. Why why, what's going on? And he says, So I was flying through this tunnel. <laughs> and this happened several times. I mean the nurse that was there helping me with him, we were looking at each other like this is just crazy because we'd get his heart rate up, he'd stay there for a little bit, and his heart rate'd start to dip and I'd go and get the medicines and then he'd get nausea, he'd start to vomit, and he'd lay back and pass out. we get the, it was it was One of the strangest incidents I've had is a a cardiac nurse, but we ended up having to put a pacemaker in him and everything, but in taking care of him after we got the, he went down for, had an angioplasty, we got some vessels opened up, got a permanent pacemaker in. I was talking to him when he came back into our unit and he said, I know you people thought I was crazy. And uh, I said, well, tell me, tell me more about what, what happened. And uh, so he described that he was flying through this tunnel. It was a sparkling kind of tunnel. And these little lights would go with him and some would, you know, go past him. And he said, the closer that I got to this light, he said it it was it was pulsating and and, in a beautiful, warm, golden light that the closer he got to it, the more love that he felt and the more he wanted to get towards that light. But then as he got closer, he kind of held back and because he realized I'm not good enough, I'm not I'm not worthy to go any closer um, and right before he would get to the light, then he would wake up and it would go back and forth and back and forth like this. But every time he would go, then he would get closer and closer. Um, but the realization when he came back for good was that I've I've got to change my life and I've got to get closer to God. And I've got to uh, I've got to I've got to change some things because I didn't realize how much God loved me until that incident. And he never really saw him face to face, but he knew that he knew what that love was and he knew that he had to be a better man. And it was, he was fascinating. Um, But yeah, that was him.
1: I hope I don't sound insensitive uh, with this question, but (laughs) when someone experiences the tunnel the warm golden light in the, at the end of the tunnel, these, uh, you know, they're mentioned by many people who experience a near death experience As someone who works with science, and of course I know you're a devout Catholic, but do you think this might be a defense mechanism from our body when oxygen stops reaching our brain and we, as even Robert said, hallucinate?
0: Um, No, I don't, and I'll tell you why. Because when people experience this, there's something inside them that gets touched and changed. Um, If this was just a chemical reaction, um, or anoxia from not enough oxygen to the brain, would it would it have that deep of an impact on people? I don't think it would. I just don't think it would. Um, because so many people that experience this, you ask anybody that has had a near-death experience, even if they're just floating and looking down on their body, um, what they feel in that moment is the most incredible peace and the most incredible love and feelings of 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 goodness. Um, and they're different after that. They, they absolutely have no fear of death after that, which to me, I've, I have always found fascinating because I think it's, it's human nature to, to have a certain amount of fear of death, kind of the fear of the unknown, even if you're a, a believer and you know, heaven and hell and, and Jesus and God and blah, blah, blah. Um, there's a certain fear of, well, what's it going to be like for me? Um, <clears throat> but these people who've experienced any, any part of this, um, their fear of death is completely gone. To me, that that's an impact that I just don't think is from uh, a lack of oxygen or chemical changes.
1: Well, that's fine. Okay. It, 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 yeah. I'm just say, saying that because so many people shared the same commonalities: the tunnel, mm-hmm. the the light, and then there's this entity at the end of the tunnel. Call it what you wish, folks, but it's mm-hmm. always saying, "You're ready, or you're not ready."
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, what determines what sometimes, because there's a story we're going to discuss later, where the person seemed to be, all of a sudden got better, brought the whole family, but we'll discuss that later. I don't want to give it up yet. Now, this is another one where you shouldn't judge people. Jessica, drug and child abuse. This is a very sad story. Tell us more.
0: Um, Jessica was <clears throat> uh, 18, 19 years old when she came into our unit. She was a, a homeless girl. She was an IV drug abuser. Um, she had come in because she was septic, which is um, a bacterial infection in the blood. It can be very dangerous if it's it'd be, it'll be deadly if it's not treated. Um, but her cause of infection was um, infected um, track lines or, or injection lines from where she was injecting IV heroin. Um, and her arm was inflamed. She had a huge amount of cellulitis. It's an inflammatory process that happens um, in the tissues around the um, main infection, and then that infection then gets into the blood. It'll drop your heart rate and or d- drop your blood pressure, and it just causes a whole host of of issues. Well, she came in, and uh, she was she looked a mess. Um, she she was pale. She was burning up with fever and, and shivering. And uh, she had no IV access. There were no veins in her arms that we could use at all. What? So the Yeah. Wow. Was nothing. And I could get anybody. I could stick an IV in anybody and there was, there was nothing. Um, so the surgeons had opted to put in a central line, which is a, a big bore catheter um, IV. And it goes either in the outside of the neck or in the subclavian right underneath the little collarbone there. And uh, they opted to put a central line in because we had to give her antibiotics and we had to give her fluids and, you know, we had to get the antibiotics on board sooner rather than later. So they opted to do that in the unit uh, once she got up there. So she got there, I got her settled in and the surgeon, the surgical resident came up and we were putting a line in her. And in order to do it, you have to you have to put a sterile drape um, over the area. You have to have a sterile field. So she was laying flat and. I was on her left side and the surgeon was on her right side. And so the minute that he put the drape, uh, the sterile drape, while he was starting to set up, um, part of it fell over her face. And she sat up, she grabbed it, and she threw it at the resident. She sat up in bed, and she started screaming at me. She goes, what the heck are you doing? I told you, if I told you a million times, don't put anything over my face. And we both looked at it. The surgeon and I looked at each other like, well, that seems to be a little <laughs> overkill reaction. <laughs> so I, I told her, I said, I went and got him another drape. I, said, so I explained to her what was going on. I said, I'm going to hold the drape up over here, and you just concentrate on me. And talk to me while he's doing this and it'll take your mind off of it. The drape won't be above your face and, and I'll be right here with you. <laughs> so she finally agreed. So we were, he started the procedure. I'm holding up the drape. I'm sitting in a chair next to the bed. And um, so t- t- to get her mind off of it, you know, that, that Novocaine and everything that was happening, I said, tell me what, tell me about what, what brought you in here today. And tell me, tell me what's going on with you. And um, so she proceeded to tell me basically her, her life story. Um, When she, she was initially telling me that she, she didn't have a place to live and that she, she was out on the streets and she'd been a heroin abuser most of her life. Um, And that she hung out with this, this young guy that would keep the bums away from her. So they were like friends and they just buddied around together, but they were both addicts. So anyway, in talking to her, I said, um, when did you start using heroin first? And she goes, well, it wasn't my choice. And, uh, I said, well, what do you mean it wasn't your choice? And so she said that her mother, her mother and father were both addicts. Her father had died of an, a drug overdose when she was very, very young. And her mother was left alone and an addict. And, um, in order to support herself, she used to prostitute herself. And, um, what happened one night was, and Jessica was only eight years old when this happened, um, there was a bunch of people at the, at the house and, uh, one of her mother's quote-unquote johns or whatever you, you want to call it, uh, came into her bedroom and uh, put a pillow over her face and raped her at eight years old. And uh, she said that he, um, her mother walked in and, and found out what was going on. She started screaming at the guy and he just he went into his pockets and he just started throwing $100 bills at her. And she said it shut my mother up and she closed the door. And I'm like, I I was dumbfounded. Maybe I'm. I, I thought to myself, how naive am I that that this kind of stuff goes on, and I've never heard anything so horrific in my life. It mind. makes
1: makes many of us feel so innocent, really.
0: Yes. Oh my gosh. So so I said, well, did you tell did you tell anybody what about school? She'd never been to school. She'd she had never been to school. Um, her mother kept her basically inside, and she said, and and uh, she said, so she found a much easier way for her to earn a lot more money. Oh, uh, so no. Said, yeah, she said she she pimped her out to to the different guys who were interested in uh, little girls. And, and I said, but did you scream? Did you kick? Did you bite? And she said, yeah, well, I tried. And she said, and then one night, my mother put a tourniquet on my arm and injected me. And I <sighs> said, hold it. I said, hold it. Your mother injected you with what, heroin? And she said, yeah. And this happened over and over and over. Over again, and so
1: she so, could not kick and scream.
0: No, she couldn't. She couldn't kick. She's lucky to be alive. Her mother could have easily overdosed her as as an eight and nine, ten year old kid. Um, but you know, heroin is unbelievably addicting, and so this poor thing just that was her springboard into life. It was how on earth can you recover from something like that? I mean, you're basically a drug addict from the time you're 10 years old.
1: Whatever happened to to her and the mother after?
0: Well, she said that one one day she went out to, she took the trash outside and uh, accidentally locked the door behind her. And her mother was passed out on the couch. And she said people driving by saw, you know, a young, straggly, filthy girl standing outside, um, not properly dressed for wintertime. And they called the police. And then she was in foster care, and she, her, she, she ran away from foster home after foster home after foster home because she, she said nobody really ever wanted me. She said they, they made it very clear I wasn't wanted there. No, nobody ever loved me. Nobody, nobody really ever loved me.
1: And didn't they and take she, her to the hospital that first night when she was locked out? And what they found at the hospital was. Something yeah, horrible. yeah
0: they they prosecuted the mother they found out was going and i so i said i asked her I said, what happened to your mom and did, did did they ever find any of the guys and she said they found some of them not all of them but you know some's better than nothing and uh they prosecuted the mother and um so i asked her i said well do you see your mother now and she she said her mother was in she had aids her, her mother did um and she had what they call aids dementia And uh, so they um, put her in this, this like home for patients like that. She said, and I went to see her one day and uh, she She went to see her. her." Yep. Yep. She said, I recognized her immediately. She said, and I didn't want to walk up to her and say, Hey, my name is Jessica. She said, I just stared at her. And uh, she said that she walked over to her and and, uh, wanted to bum a cigarette. So Jessica said she gave her a cigarette and she lit, lit the cigarette for her and she's just staring at her. She never said a word to her, and she go, and, and I said, "How come you never said anything to her?" And she said, "She's getting what she deserves. She's dying of AIDS. She's getting what she deserves." And It was just. It was. A, I mean, I had to leave the room several times because I was crying. Um, and she looked over at me and she said, "Well, what the hell are you bawling for? It didn't happen to you." <laughs> but all I kept thinking of was my own <laughs> children, you know. Yeah, and I right exactly. I, and I, I kept thinking to myself, I, I have. Children at, I had six. We have six children. I couldn't imagine doing anything like that to them. And here, this poor girl is left just led a life just of hell from day one. It was just, it was heartbreaking. And this, that's the part, my,
1: and that's the part where you think, all right, should we judge the mother? What if the mother went through a similar situation and we don't know it?
0: Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's. You know, they they say, you know, man's inhumanity to man. It's just I, I just I was And whatever dumb. happened to
1: to the young girl, to the eighteen year old.
0: Well I, I called in I called in a uh, social work consult you know, to see if I could get her any any sort of help, but um she ended up transferring out of our unit and then I we lo- I lost touch. I couldn't find her couldn't find her after that and you know you as a nurse in a hospital you can't go into other people's charts and look them up and find out where they went it's just not you know with the HIPAA laws and stuff like that so I really right. could never track her down. Let's
1: so you have no way of also. knowing if she survived?
0: I, I do know she got discharged because um, I know the nurse um, who was working on the floor that she, in, in our step-down unit and she did get discharged but You know, she couldn't tell me where and all that. I I knew she couldn't. (laughs) I don't know why I asked, because I knew what what the answer was going to be. But it just, it was so heartbreaking. And I I felt so bad for her. And I just, I would have loved to kept in touch. But yeah, I never saw or heard from her after that. I, I often wonder what happened to her.
1: Now, Gracie, she was unable to let go. This happens to a lot of people. Is it because they, we'll discuss the story in a moment, people who cannot let go, are they too afraid to die?
0: well with Gracie it was her husband who couldn't let her go and um it's not so much that he was afraid of her to die i think some people they they're so they they don't they don't want that pain they they just don't want that pain to come you know when somebody dies it's a it's a hard thing to deal with when somebody dies there's a lot of heart-wrenching agony that goes into it i mean when you're losing the love of your life um he just he just couldn't he just couldn't let her go but he needed he needed somebody to kind of take the uh the 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 bulb bulb what is it the bull by the horns yeah, and um say but your your wife is dying, honey, and there's nothing we can do and um none of the drugs that we were giving her were helping um, her blood pressure was so low she had
1: metastatic stage
0: four cancer
1: seventy eight um, pounds
0: had, yeah, she had a bowel obstruction from tumors growing in the in the colon. Um, and she looked like she was ten months pregnant. She was a tiny little thing. She wasn't very she was maybe four eleven. Um and uh just skin and bones, just skin and bones and this huge stomach and she was jaundiced and she was it was it was so sad and he he was just beside himself because he didn't what it came boiled down to is he didn't want to make that decision to stop. So we kind of had to take the decision away from him and say, you know, the decision's basically are gonna may be made for you whether You know, because God's going to make the decision in the end, you know, because nothing there's nothing we can do to keep a person alive. You can you can shove as many tubes and people as you want. uh, But when the master calls, there's not a darn thing we can do. And um, so we just kind of had to we just kind of had to talk him through it and say, um, it's her time and this is her time. So instead of continuing with this uh, aggressive, heroic means, um, we're just going to we're just going to let the good Lord call when he calls and we're not going to go in there and jump on her chest and shock her and, you know, push her f- full of more medications and break her ribs while we're doing chest compressions. We're just going to let, you know, we're not going to take anything away because that was this big thing. I, I I can't make that decision. I can't, I can't remove any tubes. And I said, that's fine. We're just not going to add any and we're just not going to increase the drips. We're just going to, we're just going to let her be, I'm going to give her a little medicine to help her breathe in, and, and get that kind of calm down. And then I took him back into the room after we were done talking to him. And um, I set him up next to her, to her bed and I lowered the side rail so that he could hold her hand. And then he and I talked on and off for the whole night. He told me all about their life together. And, you know, it was, it was heart wrenching to watch because I told him that, um, he needed to give her permission too. And people, people need to know that, that people need permission to, to die. Um, i 've seen it time and time and time again where uh a husband won 't die because the, he knows the wife isn 't ready or a wife won 't die because she knows the husband can 't handle it or you know vice versa and on and on and on and until they get that permission that it 's going to be okay it 's okay for you to go i 'm going to be fine then they can let go it 's amazing it 's amazing how that happens i 've seen it happen time and time again and that 's eventually what happened with him he he finally realized that this is what he needed to do. So I set him up and he, he, um, I got the machines out of his way and he put his, his arm underneath her, her neck and shoulders. And he just, he cuddled her and he kissed her. And I just closed, I closed the uh drapes in front of the, uh the cubicle and I shut the glass doors and let them have their time alone. Once that was done, once he gave her permission, you could just see the weight being lifted off of him. And then he sat down and, spent the rest of the night with her and she died that morning. Then around seven o'clock in the morning.
1: Now, when somebody is in a coma, I can see how the decision lies with somebody from the family, direct family. But if somebody comes back and forth, you know, back from being conscious to not unconscious and they say, Hey, I don't want you to resuscitate me again. Can they have, can they make that decision themselves?
0: I I think they, if, if, a lot of things go are involved in in um, making that decision. You have to be you have to first of all, you got to be mentally competent. You have to know the the gravity right. of the decision that you're making. Um, in a situation like that, I'm and and with a family member say, saying you need to you need to keep resuscitating him, and then the family coming or the patient coming back and saying, I'm done. Don't do this to me anymore. I don't I don't know if they. I think it would all depend on the patient and the situation and the family members. You know. I'm sure that they probably could, but if it's, if it's like Robert who was going back and forth and back and forth, I, I don't think they would have listened to that. I think they would have listened to the family, but I can't speak for the physicians either.
1: And a quick parenthesis here, I'm just thinking, when it comes to man or a woman, I think it's much, much worse when the man stays for some reason. I mean, the woman, women seem to be more social. They have friends, most of them. The man seems to be, I'm private. I can do it on my own, blah, blah, blah. I recently, I have an aunt that passed away a few well, weeks ago. And the husband was 12 years older than her. He's 90. And he thought, oh, one day I'll die, you know, but you'll be taken care of. Well, he had to take care of her. She had Alzheimer's for a couple of years. And now he just doesn't want to continue living. Do you see that common denominator when the man is the one who survives the the, the wife?
0: Absolutely. Um, I will never forget. This isn't in the book, but I'll never forget. We admitted a woman into the um, inpatient hospice unit on a Thursday. She died on Friday. We admitted her husband on Saturday and he died on Sunday. And actually, I think they've done a study. I, I can't I can't quote the study, but I think they did a study. I think it's in England or something like that, where they um, the average survival rate of a spouse. Now, this is, these are spouses who have been married for an extended period of time. I think the average was 18 months that the, the, the surviving spouse lives on an average.
1: For the man like or either. for both?
0: Either, Either or. Either or. But most of the time, I think we have a women have a, a more longevity than men do on an average. You know, we have much more women alive into old age than we do men.
1: Now, why but is that? As a nurse, uh-huh. tell me why. Is it because women <laughs> tend to go to the doctor more? <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> Who
0: knows? Um, we're But women are strong, though. You know, we we have babies and we raise them and we cook and we clean and we work outside the home. Women are very strong. Um but I don't know. But I, I see a lot of I see a lot of spouses um lose the will to live when when their uh when their husbands die. Um especially when they've been married forty, fifty, sixty years, seventy years. It's 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 like I had one lady explain to me, she said Half of half of me is dead. Half of me just died. How how can I go on when half of me isn't here? And and she told me she says I've known him longer than I've known anybody in my life. All of my brothers and sisters are dead. My parents are dead. Uh, you know I, I've known him longer than I have my own children. What am I gonna do without him? It's heartbreaking because I've never been in that situation. It's it's, it's very hard to, to to really be able to relate what that feels like. It's got to be. I think about it a lot, the older that I get, um, one day I'm going to be there or my husband's going to be there. And how am I going to handle that? I don't even like to think about it. Um, but I, I hear it so much that, that it's hard to go on. So we get, um, we get them involved with, um, bereavement groups and bereavement counseling and stuff. And those people are really talented at, and and know exactly how to help people in that situation much more than, um, any of us <laughs> to certain extent list. because you know it's very true unless you've walked the walk it's very hard I mean we try to empathize with people and be compassionate but to actually try and put your feet in those shoes it's very difficult to do
1: and I think a lot of the fear of dying for example I, I don't fear dying at all what I fear is leaving my loved and loved ones behind I think that's mm-hmm. probably one of the biggest fears most people have
0: yeah yeah I think my husband'd be fine though,
1: <laughs> yeah, but the children
0: it, well all my kids are older now, yeah, but uh, it's true I mean we see we see people who are are leaving small children behind that and um, yeah. it's yeah yeah i, I had a, a man I think oh, don't say it.
1: Don't, don't don't say the okay. story because we have to take a one and only break and okay. I, okay. I know where you're are you, are you talking about the uh, the one who had many children and the day of the funeral, she found out she was pregnant. What was that? That's oh, one oh, of no, your... those. That,
0: that was my. <laughs> oh, yeah. Look, I... That
1: was another story. But anyway, tell right. us the story when we come back. How okay. can people buy the book, "An Army in Heaven"?
0: Um, it's on um, Amazon. I think it's on Google Play. Uh, it's in Kindle. Um, SpiritDaily.com, um, has it in his bookstore. So I think if you if you type in Google, "An Army in Heaven." Um, it'll
1: come up. Oh, it's everywhere. And we have a link on our website, too. And, folks, i got to tell you, when you when you buy the book and you're going to enjoy it, all these stories, try to read it uh, in a private place unless you don't mind crying in front of people. And, by the way, men cry. It doesn't matter. Men cry. I cried. Your son cried when he read the book. It happens. We all have a heart. And we have plenty of more stories to discuss, especially those who see the other side. We have plenty of those stories coming up when we come back. And this is dedicated to a lot of our listeners who have lost someone lately. I know who you are. I cannot name all the names because I'll be talking for a long time, but you know who you are. And so that we can be prepared for that time in the future, that we are all going to leave this plane and we shouldn't be in fear. By listening to these stories, hopefully this is going to give us some hope that when the time comes, we're all going to be prepared this is Mel Fabregas my special guest today is Kelly Jankowski and the book An Army in Heaven much more to discuss when we come back this is Mel Fabregas and you're listening to Veritas thank you for listening to the first part of this very important Veritas interview to listen to the rest and all of our archived material go to the members section or subscribe at veritasradio.com don't forget to visit the Veritas store for great products including pure organic sulfur rebounders turmeric, and more. Thank you.